0: I'd like to talk tonight about metta uh, inclusive of the other brahma viharas as a as a dharma transmission in in retreat practice and in in daily life practice transmission as a opening release of energy transmission of that, uh, transformation of that energy, and um, a little bit about spiritual friendship and resourcing, resourcing by that I mean um, it's difficult work that we're doing and we need to learn how to continue staying in the moment or staying with a, you know, the general sense of metta, but sometimes just have a glass of cool water or the equivalent. Here's an equivalent. I had a phone call a little, about an hour ago from uh, um, my friend Mirabai, who's sailing with her partner in the, uh, in the Bahamas, taking a little, she's resourcing. She works hard uh, in the uh, directing the Center for Contemplative Mind and Society, <clears throat> uh, a nonprofit organization that Michelle and I and Joseph Sharon have all done work for, bringing contemplative practices into mainstream uh, American institutions. So she called me on. Uh, she's renting a satellite phone, and. Um, my friend Joe from Hawaii says, uh, "Who's also a friend of Mirabai's, He said he only knew two people in the world with satellite phones: Osama bin Laden, <clears throat> Osama bin Laden, and me. I got one last year after my mom, uh, my mom fell, and I was in Burma. And uh, essentially, Miss Michelle saved her life. You know, found her um, in the bathtub, unconscious. So I came home, and then I went back to retreat some and bought a, a satellite phone in, in Thailand. So, uh, so Mirbai wanted to kind of join the club, and she called and said that they had just uh, been going to these deserted islands in the Bahamas, no other people. And they came up to one shore, uh, and there was one shack there with a... a Bahamian um, man just living in this simple shack by himself uh, a aging blues musician eighty years old and he had his uh, keyboards and operated by a, a battery that you know he had to shove a knife in to make the contacts tight you know it was just a really uh jury rigged situation there, and he was so welcoming, you know, and so hospitable to Mirabai and uh, her partner and the captain of the boat, and invited them all in, and they all sang the blues. That's resourcing. Another way to resource, and I'm really going to talk about resourcing later, but I'm going to introduce... Another aspect of the metta practice that we always introduced in the beginning, um, but because the metta practice is such a um, sensitizing and often raw, vulnerable process, we found that that introducing the forgiveness practice in the beginning wasn't also, wasn't always so skillful, you know, for some people who, um, for various conditions, weren't ready to do that practice. Now's a good time to introduce, and it's very simple. You can do it any time you want, um, with any words that you want. It's something like, if I have knowingly or unknowingly, that is intentionally or unintentionally, caused any being, any suffering, pain, harm, at any time, or some particular being that you want to name, I have caused anyone any harm. I ask for forgiveness. And any any being who has knowingly or unknowingly caused me harm, I forgive them. Or you might want to qualify that, since this is a practice. I forgive them as best I am able at this time. And thirdly, any way in which i have harmed myself through ignorance through fear through attachment i for, i forgive myself very simple but it can have real profound effects and, and uh, on levels of our being you know where we may feel feel an unhe- unhealthy guilt or shame you know arising out of aversion, self-loathing, or resentment that we harbor for someone that keeps us locked up someplace, maybe in a suppressed way. But nevertheless, we tighten around it physically, emotionally, psychologically. So it begins to free that up. It gets like an entry for the, the meta mist to begin to get into those deeper places inside and, and flush out. Um, there's there's a healthy way, you know, to regard past actions that may come to mind that's not, you know, ridden with guilt or unhealthy shame and that we could call skillful remorse where we reflect on actions that cause pain to ourselves or to others and set the intention that in the future, you know, we intend not to do those actions which cause harm. And we intend to instead act in ways that are appropriate and um, skillful. And it's healthy. We may need to do this many times. That's why it's a practice. I was talking last time about... um, uh, the, the cool warmth of, of metta. And so as, we, as I open to speaking about metta as a transmission, as a release of energy, as a transformation of uh, places in us that are locked and blocked, uh, karmic knots and tangles, are just the, the energy folds from early conditioning in this life, um, you know, we can think of these Brahma Viharas, Metta, Karuna, compassion, Murita, joy, Upeka, uh, that being in the midst of things with balance, equanimity, like light, like, uh, like solar wind. You know, light is a time traveler. Light moves very quickly and uh, faster than we can think and It penetrates, it evolves, it arises from within. Often people in practice sit and they just start to feel light, experience light, whether it's metta or vipassana. Uh, Every particle, every sensation, sound, the whole mind-body unification experience can be one of just subtle light. Movement of light and casting light in areas of darkness, casting light in the in those folds and those knots and tangles. when I was um uh, practicing as a monk in burma twenty two three years ago, um, there was a period period of time where um, I was there alone, and after the ma- main meal of the morning of the day at ten thirty i'd get invited to uh, my teacher 's cottage, where there 'd be other uh, elder monks and um, It was to enjoy these spe- specialties like fruits from the north, upper Burma, special kinds of rare uh, mangoes and and uh, other strange fruits that I didn't know the name of, and some I didn't particularly like. But it was a, it was a, a gathering that's known as a delightful gathering, where, uh, in this case, it was four or five of, of us monks. And the youngest one, besides me, was uh, about 65. And that was Upandita. And they went up till about 90, and they just they sat there like you know like these ancient wise oak trees with their hands and fingers like the roots and knots and the the steadiness the the presence the cool warm presence uh you know captured this quality of, of both care and non-attachment that Evolves from our metta practice and the equanimity that comes out of our metta practice, uh, as in the vipassana practice as well. And this delightful gathering was something like a Japanese tea, tea ceremony, only you know a little more informal, uh, not so ritualized. Uh, but it was tea that we had a little in those delicacies. And it was mostly in silence. Uh, in in uh, in my group this morning uh some some of you were asking usumana you know about being a monk and what it was like and it was quite an inspiring discussion ensued in, in and which he described the difficulties of being a monk here in the west you know that people don't often don't even understand uh, how to greet a monk how to say hello and goodbye uh, and so much of the social social conditioning that that we know, uh, it's very different in Burma. Period, and and particularly in monastic situations, you know, where those kinds of social courtesies, where you say, you know, would you like some more fruit or some more tea? Yes, I would. Thank you very much. Nothing like that is spoken. The tea is just offered, and if you if you want it, you know. It's just a body language and an energy of gratitude that receives the tea. If you don't want it, you know, just hold your hand up. And it's that total feeling of both care and non-attachment and not this sort of forced social courtesy. Likewise with the food. you know, Out of papaya or grapes or mango and you want some more, you don't ask for it because there's a there's an awareness that's moving around there. It's just offered. You you receive it just graciously by your presence, or hold up your your hand, and nothing's said. I mean, it's not that they never said anything. Every so often something would be said. I didn't understand, uh, but often that was the only thing said. No one would respond. You know, and and they didn't they didn't care. You know, it was just, that's the non-attachment part. So. So warm and cool at the same time. Uh, but for me, it was anything but delightful because I, I was the new kid on the Buddhist block and I could hardly wear my robes. And you know when I'd bow, they'd fall off. And I was nervous around these ancient wise oak tree-like beings. Uh, and I didn't, uh, I didn't understand at first how to be silent to just kind not of be there and and feel present and not feel embarrassed or uneasy you know like I should be doing something or I should be doing it properly so in fact I was really nervous I just continually pouring pouring sweat my all my robes would be soaked by the end of the half hour gathering and I couldn't wait to get out uh, and and then I was really nervous, you know, taking these little hors d'oeuvre f- forks and, and stabbing the papaya. And papaya is very soft. And, you know, so unless, unless you get a, a good little hook in there, <laughs> which I often didn't, but I'd be stabbing it and stabbing it and stabbing it. And then <laughs> it'd be a balancing act to get it to my mouth. And a few times it dropped right into my tea. <laughs> or I'm pouring tea for you know, one of the elders next to me, and I'm shaking, it's going over into the saucer. And... <laughs> but after a few days, I, 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 tuned, I tuned more into the warmth part, you know, and, and felt this, this stream of, of caring, like um, it was okay that I was nervous and sweaty, and more sweaty of mind, really, than body, and uh, I just felt this welcoming. I felt this deep kind of resonance or understanding, and then then I understood more the cool part too. You know, the non-attachment part, the equanimity. It's just a, a, there was a native, uh, indigenous, like being able to be together, be silent together. You know, I think the purest and truest kind of love comes um, when, we, when we learn that kind of silence, when you can, we can just be with someone or be with people and have not have the need to say anything at all. Be comfortable in that. You know, not be uneasy or not zoning out. There's still a presence. You know, it might be a sparkling presence or it might be that cool, warm presence but it's a it's clearly a presence and there's a beautiful love that arises out of that so these delightful gatherings did indeed became delightful and it've become a metaphor for living ever since so i want to talk about you know the transmission primarily of of metta but also a little on the compassion joy and equanimity um, as we feel it, as we feel the metta arise from within, as we feel it um, as we feel ourselves abiding in that and as we feel it pervading to others and as we feel it coming from others individuals are are a group of people or that sense that one often has as if uh, we are just in a field, a meta field, just being meta. And that, that's often what the actual uh, deep Brahma, meta Brahma Vihara is, is like. There's no sense of it coming or going, there's no sense of coming or going, no sense of oneself giving or receiving, just resting in this field. I like this poem by uh, Jane Hirschfield. It was like this. You were happy, it's called. It was like this. You were happy, then you were sad, then happy again, then not. It went on. You were innocent or you were guilty. Actions were taken or not. At times you spoke. At other times you were silent. Mostly it seems you were silent. What could you say? Now it is almost over. Like a lover, your life bends down and kisses your life. It does this not in forgiveness. Between you, there is nothing to forgive. But with the simple nod of a baker at the moment he sees the bread is finished with transformation. Eating, too, is now a thing only for others. It doesn't matter What they will make of you are your days. They will be wrong. They will miss the wrong woman, miss the wrong man. All the stories they tell will be tales of their own invention. Your story was this. When you were happy, you were happy, then you were sad. You slept, you awakened. Sometimes you ate roasted chestnuts, sometimes persimmons. All of our practices is a movement from complexity to simplicity. You know, the way we've uh, layered our lives, mostly unconsciously, stacked it with experiences, and stored them, mostly unconsciously, and living from those places, living from those stackings and layerings, and from the knots and tangles, the folds, energy folds that are created you know, karmically and from conditioning, uh, before we had the wisdom and the compassion to be able to transform them. First we, we just used whatever child wisdom we had uh, to protect ourselves. You know, it often became that crust over the heart or became the numbness or the fear or the aversion or the intellectualization of life or the continuous interpretation that we make of life and our, our, our fear of stillness, of silence, that's needed to enter that place of seeing clearly, that's needed to enter that deep metta of unconditional love. Buddha spoke of metta as a remedy for our tendencies toward aversion and anger, uh, as well as toward uh, strong attachment and desire, how it can reach the the deepest um, uh, reaches of our mental processes uh, and, and transform psychological imbalances and disorders. How metta restores a sense of of belonging, of connectedness, or interconnectedness, uh, and heals the sense of feeling separate, of alienation. Metta, how it can recast our mindset with with confidence and conviction, uh, rather than the feelings uh, we all have had of unworthiness or low uh, self-esteem. And like the vipassana, uh, the Buddha described metta as a force that weakens the sense of a solidified, separate I, our self. That deepest source of suffering, you know, that we contract around. All the forces of greed, hatred, delusion—they—they they are the the entanglement of that fiction of self like a skein of yarn you know all ravelled up and practice is like undoing that skein and you know at the center there's nothing it's just all these ribbons of our threads uh, of experience that's been collected and stored in our psyche that's not been shaken off it's not been released you know like the animal that shakes off that fear when it's frozen in headlights instead you know we get triggered at times by something we may not even hardly notice a scent a sight a fleeting memory and suddenly we're in a you know a heavy story and mindset where we feel intense anger tense fear tense long- longing and it will wrap itself around maybe some recent scenario, maybe something we remember from a long time ago. But actually, the stronger, the more intense the feeling, the emotion, the mental state, the more it's a flag that this is an old, very old wound. One of those old, unseen, unfelt, as yet, knots or tangles, um, energy folds. And it's a invitation, you know, to start to let go of the story, to unravel the narrative uh, that, you know, where we're going back and forth about this happened to me or, you know, this situation I have to fix and so forth. You can drop the story and just sit in the, abide in the metta with that difficulty, that difficult emotion That's where the mist of of metta percolates down or arises like light and and begins to very energetically open that knot or tangle or energy fold and a lot comes out. There's a, a, a sense more of expansion. You know, there's not when uh, the Buddha spoke of vipassana practice as well as metta practice, uh, diminishing that sense of a solidified eye. That doesn't mean there's a feeling or an experience of diminishment. On the contrary, the experience is one of expansion. That's what metta and insight, that's the effect they have on the heart and the mind. Uh, A friend of ours I think I mentioned in the last talk about the Hawaii Loa double haul sailing canoe built of indigenous materials and sailing into Alaska to offer thanks. Uh, the journey began in the mid 70s uh, with the first double haul sailing canoe built in 600 years. And it was the intention to recreate the, the the Polynesian voyaging culture, its spirituality, its community. Uh, and it's become far more than the original intention of, of education Our proof that the uh, indigenous cultures of Polynesia had the intelligence to do so because the prevailing Western theory said they did not. So Nainoa was the first trained navigator from this master they found in Micronesia, named Mao. And on his very first uh, solo uh, navigation experience on the Hokulea, means the uh, star of, of uh, star of gladness. And it's one of it's uh, Arcturus, one of the stars in the in the uh, scene from the Polynesian skies. Uh, he he wasn't getting any instruction. Mao, the master, was on the boat, uh, but he was just laying low a lot of the times, just lying under his his um, tarp and letting Nainoa make all the mistakes. You know, and learn that way. In fact, his teaching style was quite nonverbal. He said very little, and uh, so one night, he or one evening, just before night, uh, as the moon was beginning, full moon was beginning to rise, and and um, uh, the sun set and Venus rise and whatnot. Mao came out from under his tarp and said. bring down the sails, put up the storm sails. And then he went back under his tarp. And the entire crew of women and men looked around, and the skies everywhere were clear. No clouds, no nothing. But Mao was a a master, and whether it was scent, which these masters were very attuned to, used all the senses, scent, sound, sight, taste, vibration, through the body, through the canoe, feeling the currents. He knew that a storm was coming. And indeed, in 20 minutes or so, half an hour, they saw these dark clouds coming right at the dusk. And soon, everything was covered. It's non-instrument navigation, how to see, you know, what to do. And know it was struggling, just trying to figure out where they were. Uh, he had not yet, you know, learned uh, how to read the, the different currents. There can be two, three, four, or five currents at once in different directions. If you know how to read it, if you know to see the the pattern, the order in the chaos, it's a clear map out of that chaotic field. The analogy applies to our own experience. You know, if we're patient enough, if we sit and abide in the metta, if we look clearly enough with acceptance, we will find uh, the, the skillful approach uh, like a light that shows the way out or transforms whatever difficult or, or pleasant experience is happening that we might be stuck in. So, I know it was also the kind of like spiritual leader. Everyone looked up to the navigator for confidence, so The rain came, and it was cold, and they had rain jackets uh, kept them you know, relatively dry but not warm, and I know it was pacing. They don't sleep very much, like little cat naps, maybe at the very most two to three hours in a whole 24-hour cycle in, in little 20-minute segments. So he was tired, he was new at this, and he looked for any signs at all, any Hint of light through the clouds of the full moon, and he's getting more and more frustrated and, and more and more identified with, you know, failing and not seeing. He put his hood down over his eyes so people couldn't see the fear there and couldn't feel his, uh, you know, growing sense of shame. They couldn't do it. And then he went in the back of, of the hull, one of the double hull canoes propped his elbows on the gunnel, and, uh, you know, propped himself up confidently for show. But he said inside, you know, he just felt really defeated. And, And so he just sort of said, I just need to rest. You know, I can't do this. I can't do this. And he said he just let go. And in that moment of letting go, he said, I don't know how this happened or what it was, but this warmth overcame me, came through my body. And then, you know, from some center of his being, the Hawaiians call it pico here, from from some center there was this, this expansion. And it just went out and it went above and beyond the storm and the clouds. And he said, I don't I don't know how I knew this, Steve, but I just I knew I knew where the moon was. And he gave new directions. And they sailed that way for an hour or so, the storm passed. And indeed he was on track. It's the right tack. Under his tarp, Mao just smiled. When he just completely let go and, and surrendered, yet there was something in him that wasn't giving up, that just was willing to abide in, in the knowing of this frustration and this difficulty, facing it fearlessly, not running from it, not trying to figure it out, not trying to fix anything. Then that cool warmth, that expansion grew, casting light on the darkness. The Buddha characterized metta as a force that combined with the awakening factors of practice. Awakening factors are like uh, mindfulness and uh, inquiry, investigation, joy, calm, concentration, equanimity. When you bring metta together with these awakening uh, uh, factors, it harnesses the loving kindness uh, all in toward the the direction of, of realization of complete realization Metta is the is the most frequently mentioned word in all the texts in all the texts save uh, mindfulness but behind our sense desire there's often a deep Longing for completion, for happiness, for wholeness. Uh, And that's locked in. So when as metta percolates in and reaches one of these places non-verbally, pre-verbally, pre-conceptually, that uh, more neurotic clinging sense desire may transform to this pure and healthy longing uh, for, for happiness, for peace, likewise with the behind the anger or fear, if we can just there can just be a witnessing of it, as we abide in the metta, The, the need, to feel connected, to feel that we belong replaces the the sense of separation that's, you know, hidden, in that anger hidden in that aversion hidden in that ill will so when we talk when i talk about the energy releases and transformation speaking about what gets knotted what gets folded uh, are two very different kinds of energy you know one is the block one is the what is pre- preventing light in the mind preventing you know healthy uh, emotions and, and physical body. But locked in there is is the opposite energy. You know, the liberating energy. The zest for life, passion for life, enthusiasm, connectedness, deep love, unbridled joy, delight, spiritual happiness. That's why sometimes... You know, an intrigue can come from two different directions. We can be with a lot of pain, you know, like psychological pain or body pain. And at some point, when we're at rest, not trying to change, not trying to fix, not seeing it as a problem, but it's just there's just that pure witnessing, all of a sudden there's a release of energy and a transformation, and out comes incredible flush of, of, of joy, of energy, of lightness. And likewise, sometimes we may have a tremendous experience of sitting or walking or in the middle of a meal of joy, of, of light in, in the mind or light that comes from all around, of ease, of peace. And on the heels of that, you know, some time later comes a, a, a deep hit of dukkha, suffering discomfort pain a blockage that we hadn't seen uh, uh, often the first impulse is to try and figure it out to wrap these feelings of pain or joy around some story this this is the time to be all the more grounded all the more abiding in in the meta in in the moment you know in the Heart center, or in the body, uh, or with our meta subject, or with that expansive meta awareness of the space around us. Whatever, whatever is grounding, whatever keeps the openness of heart, you know, so we don't close off to the pain, and we don't grasp on to the joy and get, get lost. You know, go off. That's when you feel that those great elations followed by a fall. Because we make a story out of that that joyous liberation. Oh, my God, this is great. This is what I've been waiting for. This is what I came for. You can't wait to, you know, go tell the teachers. I don't even think they've probably experienced something like <laughs> this before. And the mind proliferates and proliferates. Uh, and we have a dozen stories. And I wait till I go home and, you know, tell my friends i've got to tell you know my family and friends and the mind goes wild it's a caution for those of you who are leaving tomorrow <laughs> if people ask you how your time was you know you had a good retreat they really just want to hear yes <laughs> it was good We've heard many stories over the years of, of you know, the immediate sense of, trying, of conversion, that conversion syndrome where, oh, God, you know, it was just amazing. I, I was just filled with light and love and joy like I've never had before. Can you see it? You know, can you feel it? I'm sitting you your right now. Big wide eyes, you know. And, and and this is this is how we walk. Watch. <laughs> <laughs> They're really going to wonder what, <laughs> and then may not be so interested uh, as much if you just if you stay composed and you just are metta and you listen, you know, and you're silent and. You're present. That's what will get their curiosity going. You know, and, and then you can, from your own experience, with clarity and sort of attunement to what they can hear or not, you know, say little bits. But solitude will be really important the first few days, for those of you leaving, you know, to resource, to uh, sustain uh, what doesn't end with the last bell? These these energy releases, um, once they start, they they will continue. You know, it'll cool down as we integrate gradually back into our day-to-day life. But if you keep, if you sustain a, a daily practice, as you bring you know, metamorph in your life through your thoughts and speech. And you know bodily movements as you uh, become metta more as you do more retreats, it's just going to continue. Meta is like light; it's a, it's a, it's in motion, it's dynamic, it's moving. It is that inner urge in us all to direct us to wholeness, completion, and liberation. It is that pure desire. Metta is a very pure desire, connection for tenderness, for care, for warmth. It's intense, It's intense to do this practice and, and to kind of feel this percolation through the um, uh, stacking, layering, folds and whatnot. And it requires great patience. They don't open all at once. And once we have one release, it doesn't, Mean that that particular karmic knot or uh, early childhood conditioning is forever liberated. It may be repeated for a number of cycles, but once there, the way back is easier and the way we respond to it is easier. Often, the first time we connect with it, there's a contraction, you know, a fear response, understandable. Later on, we learn how to touch the areas and skillfully expand, make space, back off, but stay grounded. You know, uh, that's where the, the, the resourcing may begin. And, um, you know, among the resources is, is guidance, spiritual friends that, you know, help us be able to be with a deep old emotion anger that we might feel that comes up in a story when we sit and proliferate. Uh, as I said, the more intense, usually it's a signal that it's something very old, very pre-conceptual and pre-verbal. Uh, and if we're not careful, we objectify it. Uh, you know, It's just like there's I and then there's my anger and, and either use it against ourself and self-loathing or against the person in our story. Whereas we have some guidance, we we find uh, better ways to see it. That is, making that more expansive meta field in which it's just anger or just fear, just judgment. When I was practicing in the uh, early months as a monk, I went through periods of feeling terribly lonely and afraid. And longing for a home and familiarity and friends and food and whatnot. And, you know, terrified that I was failing and ashamed, going into my meditation cell, weeping. And, you know, I, was, I couldn't even explain what was happening for a while, because it was all shrouded in doubt. I had no confidence and I guess I was stumbling when trying to report to my teacher. Uh, and so then about the second time I went to see him, second or third time, you know, he, he, he probed more and he asked more questions and he saw, even though I couldn't say it, articulate it, uh, the, the nature of a spiritual friend, you know, of a spiritual mentor, is that they can see you, they can see your core, they see your goodness, they see your beauty, your preciousness, your love, often long before we ourselves, even though we have it, and they connect with that and, and slowly, carefully guide us into it, into seeing it and feeling it. And so for the time being, Sayadaw just said, "Try and look at the com- composite pieces of this doubt. You know, Is there fear there? Is there longing there? Is there loneliness there? you know is there um, uh, anger there? Just look for those simple states and notice those and he just said it was such an embracing meta quality and feeling it gave me strong a stronger conviction and, and confidence and I went back to practice and slowly saw all these you know pieces that made made up this uh a confusing recipe, cloudy mind, doubting mind, but as I was just able to notice and feel the loneliness without making it go away or fearing it or suppressing it, feel the the fear, the um, uh, depression uh, the longing, then they began to transform, you know, and it was like practicing on a more energetic level, not a thought interpretation, analytic level. The trans- transmission of metta, moving deep into our body, uh, physical body, emotional body, psychological body, uh, often, discovering that in there lies fear, anger, rage, uh, and to touch that you know to, to deal with our own inner rage and let that transform and feel the beauty uh, waiting to be released, the joy, the reconnection with life that 's been locked for so long away in there, and we can get to it physically or through our you know emotional. Uh, states, if we can just be a, just witnessing the process, um, then that meta frees it up. If we can deal with our own inner rage, how how much more skillful and prepared are we than to deal with rage we see in the world, either personal or you know in in worldly conditions, worldly situations, without adding to it, without stacking more layering more. Rage often invokes either fear or more rage. We get angry at what we see happening. So instead, that kindness and connection comes out with the metta. And the karuna, our compassion, that uh, what I was calling the fearless uh, abiding in, in the present when there's pain, when there's suffering, not suppressing if there's fear, we feel the fear. If there's a distancing from the suffering, we open to that. If we wallow in the grief, we open to that. That's, uh, that's part of the, la- the layering, the stacking. That's so how we get to that energy, not our tangle. And then there can be this amazing release of care, of our native, innate compassion, tenderness, responsiveness to suffering that's connected, empathic, not distanced, not afraid. We, we, we open up the lid of all those little pockets where we're cruel to ourselves, where we're manipulative to ourselves or others, where we're that, uh, the, the need to control, it all comes under the far enemy of compassion. Mudita, empathetic joy. Herein lies a lot of where our self-worth is either high or low. A few years ago, a a movie came out. It was a a, um, sequel to a, a famous movie in the 60s called Endless Summer. Surfing movie. Two surfers. Following the sun around the world in the days of longboard surfing, the only real surfing there ever was. <laughs> so, Endless Summer 2 came out a few years ago. Well, probably more than that now. It's when uh, Usumana's, when I was teaching Usumana's brother, I was speaking of this morning, to surf when he was about six. So, that's about eight years ago in the summer, too. And we would just watch it and watch it and watch it and watch it. And we'd get you know, to watching every wave <laughs> all over the world. And uh, there were two surfers, again, um, but younger. And one of them was a longboarder, and one of them was a shortboarder. Uh, and the shortboarder is more radical style, you know, uh, quick-moving, all kinds of tricks and this and that. The longboarder is more soulful, you know, cruising. <laughs> Cool. <laughs> the short boarder had a lot of energy, and he was just always, you know, just a blonde kid. He was always jumping, <laughs> immediately jumping into the surf and paddling out, always smiling and bouncing around, you know. He just couldn't, he was so exuberant continuously. And the, the narrator, Bruce Brown, the same, the same person who did the first Endless Summer <coughs> <laughs> One, he, he he said of him, he's, he's perpetually stoked. <laughs> so it was one of the first phrases that young Nate, Usumina's little brother, started to use and repeat you know, perpetually stoked, perpetually stoked, perpetually stoked. Well, Mudita mu, is being perpetually stoked, <laughs> 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 it's the transmission and it's a transmission and release of the energy knots of comparing mine envy jealousy uh, low self-worth shame into this unbridled unfettered uh, joyousness where we take joy in everything in other people's happiness in in waves in our own you know uh, great gift of life Beautiful feeling. And in fact, joy arises again and again in all these forms of practice. Any kind of concentration on metta, any of the Brahma Viharas, mindfulness practice as well. You know, the, the Buddha described our practice much like the way uh, a, a, an intense storm fills up the back of a valley and there's these rivulets that fill up ravines, that fill up streams, that fill up a big river that flow all the way to the sea. And he said, likewise, our practice should be continually, perpetually cultivating uh, delight and joy and spiritual happiness that flow onward and onward to the sea of liberation. And the upeka, the transmission that Releases our energy knots and tangles of reactiveness, you know, where we're pursuing and clinging to pleasure and gain and success and fame, and where we're avoiding and uh, fearing, denying uh, loss and, and grief and unpleasantness, difficulty, and this hankering, continuous hankering to get or get rid of. You know, to live in that vortex, in that oppositional force, is, is excruciating. We know this. We live there a lot of the time. So that the transmission that we get from this Brahma-vihara and through uh, the mindfulness practice as well is a you know, deliverance from that reactivity, this, uh, this quantum leap beyond those opposing forces to balance of mind, serenity of mind, to uh, a, a very clear uh, uh, seeing and knowing of justice, equality, non-judging, and being able to act powerfully, sometimes fiercely, ferociously, from compassion to correct error, you know, to, to make right what's been wrong, but not with reactiveness, not with anger, revenge, fear, our attachment. So just a little bit on um, resourcing. To acknowledge all of you here doing this retreat, leaving and staying on, the great courage it takes. You know to do this work to to again and again just sit and until you know that that moment that first moment when some energy tangle that we've been trying to get to and get rid of and fix and change we don't do that but we actually just rest abide in in the meta in the meta witnessing of of that and let the meta do the work you know the meta is an intelligence. It's a spiritual intelligence. It knows far better what to do than our identified mental sense of self. Uh, So your courage, your growing confidence and and trust in the process, your wide-minded patience, Um, you know, it's like sometimes coming back from the battlefield. You know, our you know in a boxing match. You know, you can't wait for the bell to ring. You can go to the corner and take that awful mouth guard out and get some water poured over your face and patch up those cuts by your eyes and whatnot. Take a few breaths, you know, and get coached to to go back in there. Uh, but <laughs> that's what it sometimes feels like. And that's when we really need to resource. We need to go find that eighty year old blues musician in the Bahama Island, you know, and just hang with him. So some of the resources, touchstones you can find in practice you can take with you. You know, when, when it gets intense nature without an agenda just a breath, a full bodied breath or feeling the body itself to get grounded again wherever you find refuge, in a spiritual friend, uh, places that you go to, either actually, physically, or mentally. Just imagine a place that you love to be at, a beach, a mountaintop, a forest, a a waterfall, uh, uh, and rest there, resource there. Pull up, again, that refreshing, invigorating, uh, renewing energy. Spiritual friends. They're often the most powerful uh, Guides to have. Buddha clearly defined a spiritual friend as a true hearted one in, in, the, in the text, the Digha uh, where he says, A spiritual friend or a true hearted one is one who helps. And that's one who helps, uh, cares for us, looks after us in time of need or trouble, is a refuge for us when we're afraid. Are, have been harmed, hurt in some way, uh, and is generous with us, unqualified, unconditionally generous with their time, and, and resources and compassion, energy. One who helps, secondly, remains constant, whether we were in a cycle of gain or loss. Uh, is protective of us, you know, confidential with things that we might share, and rather than spreading, you know, uh, bad information around or delicate matters, uh, and does not abandon us in times of trouble. You know, not afraid of our our hurts and our fears, but has that compassionate presence. One who helps, one who remains constant. Thirdly. The true-hearted one is one who advises us away from harm, toward the good, setting us straight if they see us you know wavering off uh, our way. the direction, the intention of wellness, health, fullness, liberation. And lastly, shows affection. They help. They remain constant. They advise. They show affection. Rejoice in our good fortune. Kind to us in times of mis- misfortune, misfortune, and able to freely express their appreciation of us and joy in our well-being. That is, they um, not afraid to let us rub up against them, you know, and, and feel their affection for us, their love of us and very protective, you know, of our, of, our, of our being. Protect us in the face of other people's, um, you know, disparaging remarks. Ever faithful. So well, That's a, a mentor or spiritual friend. And they're there, maybe for guidance, for questions. We can resource by, you know, uh, asking devas to help us if we have a feel for that realm of uh, of the shining ones, deva means shining ones, you can see them as within us, you can see them as entities that hover around, like Michelle was saying last night, devas love to be around the Dhamma, particularly love to be around metta. They drink it up. And they're also known as powerful personal protectors, When we ask for their help. Crying. Dhamma tears. That can be a way of of resourcing. Those beautiful metta tears streaming down the face. Laughing. You know, to see our humanness, foibles, flaws, and be able to laugh at our own ridiculousness and others. You know, sometimes you take a peek around. It looks really weird what we're doing here. <laughs> really strange. Uh, mm, when my friend uh, Lynn, a teacher from, our friend Lynn from Australia, and you know, she first went to Bodh Gaya to practice 30 years ago. Uh, and she was told to go to this particular monastery, the Burmese Vihar, Vihara. And she... Walked down there and she kind of looked through the gate and she saw all these people dressed in white. There's a retreat going on. You know, in India, you wear white a lot because it reflects the heat off. And they were, some were bathing, you know, in their um, bathing uh, uh, sarongs. Others were going up steps real slowly and mindfully. She'd never seen a retreat before. Others, you know, were reaching for the clothesline to get something <laughs> off the clothesline like that. And she looked and she said, this, uh, this, is, this must be the wrong place. This looks like a mental ward. <laughs> <laughs> so it's helpful to just kind of, even what we do to resource, what we, our practice itself to laugh at ourselves. An intention. That's a resource, realigning with our purpose. What do we want from this life? What do we want to do with our lives? Even if it means some real radical change, you know, that keeps us in alignment with our truth, and our Dhamma. What's our intention in, in, in a particular retreat, in a particular sitting? You know, in a moment as we feel the mind getting lost in some narrative. What's our intention? That's resource, and it kind of brings us back to center, to respecting, valuing the Dhamma. That's what we're here to do the transmission of these powers, great powers that are native to our being, unconditional love, wise compassion, empathetic joy, perpetual joy, and that being in the midst of things as they are. This closing poem is by Mary Oliver called Luna. In the early curtains of the dusk, it flew a slow galloping this way and that way through the trees and under the trees. I live in the open-mindedness of not knowing enough about anything. It was beautiful, it was silent, it didn't even have a mouth, but it wanted something It had a purpose and a few precious hours to find it, and I suppose it did. The next evening it lay on the ground like a broken leaf and didn't move, which hurt my heart, which is another small thing that doesn't know much. When this happened, it was about the middle of summer, which also has its purposes in only so many precious hours. How quietly, and not with any assignment from us, or even a small hint of understanding, everything that needs to be done is done.